Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is January 27th, 2016. This is broadcast number 104. And today we're um, uh, pleased to have Dr. Michael Morales in studio uh, to talk about his newest book um, that just came out in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series. I don't know how many volumes there are in it. I know there's quite a few. Um, but anyway, it's put out by uh, InterVarsity Press, right, IVP, and um, it, it's what it sounds like. It's a, it's a book that deals with biblical theology, and so we're going to talk with Dr. Morales about this new book he has, uh, has just been released, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, a Biblical Theology of the Book of, of Leviticus, and we'll talk with him in just a minute. Let me do uh, just a few quick housekeeping things and items uh, to keep people up to speed with what we're doing. Again, I just want to remind you that we do have a mobile app that you can use to listen to not only the podcast, but conference lectures, uh, the GPTS Spring Theology Conference, which is on the horizon, really. We're um, uh, very soon to have the 2016 edition, which is going to be dealing with marriage, family, and sexuality. That's March 8th through the 10th at Woodruff Road Presbyterian Church. If you haven't signed up for it uh, by now, um, I would encourage you to do so. Don't miss out. It's an important subject, topic for our day, and um, so um, you can get information about that at our website, gpts.edu. But you get the mobile app. It has this, the conferences. It has chapel lectures, both audio and video, as well as this podcast. So take advantage of that. It's in both Apple <clears throat> and Android um, varieties. Um, also, our website, confessingyourhope.com, we uh, do stream live broadcasts from time to time, and so um, you can listen right there at our, at our, at our website, confessingyourhope.com, as well as all the archives, resources, documents, uh, whatever um, that is related to this uh, podcast. So take advantage of those items. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to uh, be talking with Dr. Morales uh, this morning, uh, well, it's morning where I am right now. <laughs> it may not be morning where you're listening, but it's morning here at this moment. Um, but we're going to be talking with him about his newest book. And Dr. Morales is um, the professor of biblical studies at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And he's one of our newest professors. And I've had the pleasure to get to know him and to sit under him as he's instructed on these matters. And it is a fantastic um, a study. So, Dr. Morales, it's great to have you back. And we've talked a little bit about biblical theology before. Maybe we'll cover that a little bit um, as an introductory thing. But um, anyway, it's good to have you back Thank in you the room. Me, Bill. Yeah. Both of us, if, in case you're listening carefully, both of us are probably suffering a little bit with uh, what's going around the hollowed halls of the seminary. Um, I have a cold uh, right now. I think it's a cold. My wife thinks it's the flu. But it's not contagious. I mean, you can't catch it over the air, so don't worry. Uh, but listen closely. The book, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? Um, give us some background. What was... Uh, it, it's a pretty thick book, and so obviously a lot of time and effort went into this, but what was the, the genesis of it? No pun intended. Well, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> but what was, you know, what was circulating, and, and, and how did it become a book? A lot of what became this book uh, was just sort of picking fruit from some of my labors uh, for my dissertation where I kind of um, develop in seed form uh, an approach to biblical theology. And then as I've taught Old Testament biblical theology and the New Testament biblical theology in various institutions, including here, um, the idea of uh, putting it all together uh, for a biblical theology book um, was really appealing to me, but specifically to focus in on on Leviticus, and 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 
as I've been in your classes, of course, I know your passion for the book of Leviticus. And I got to tell you, you know, the first time you mentioned Leviticus is the heart of the Pentateuch. I remember you saying that, and I, my ears perked up, and I thought, why? It's, you know, when you read it, just not really grasping the full overarching theme of what's going on, you read it, you're like, man, I just can't wait to get to the end of this thing. It's just, you know, one thing after another, it's it almost you drudge along. Okay, good, I'm out of Leviticus. I'm in Numbers. Phew, I made it. But why Leviticus? Of all the books that you could have done a biblical theology on, you picked Leviticus. Yeah. As I've approached doing an Old Testament theology, it's been very important to me, and I've seen the, uh, I guess, the appropriate rationale for building a biblical theology based off of the Torah or the Pentateuch. Um, it really is the foundation for the rest of the scriptures, even into the New Testament. And so, uh, if you get the Pentateuch right, it really helps to ensure that you get the rest of the canon right, you understand where the prophets are coming from, uh, etc. And as I've studied the Pentateuch, I've come to the understanding that Leviticus is really the heart of it, as, as you just mentioned a few minutes ago. And in the ancient Near East, that this was common to when you had a work that, that the the heart of that work was typically placed in the center. So if you want to understand the gist of the Pentateuch, its major theme, you would find it in the center. And by and large, um, in Judaism today, that that's well understood. Leviticus would probably be the first book you teach your child, whereas, as you were saying, in uh, most of our Christian circles, it's the book we avoid like yeah, a plague. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned it's the foundation uh, for the New Testament, which is, again, you know, I was raised under a dispensational uh, environment, and so that would be if you said that to me when I was 15, I'd have probably been offended <laughs> um, by that comment. But why is Leviticus really the foundation to understand rightly the New Testament? Okay. Uh, I That's guess, a loaded question. Sure. I, realize. I guess to begin with how it's the foundation of the Pentateuch. So again, it's a central book. And the way the, my first chapter in uh, Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord I'd look at a broad overview of the Pentateuch, and show how you can basically approach it like climbing a mountain, uh, which fits well with the title, and the summit of that mountain then is Leviticus, and after you hit Leviticus, you're you're descending. So uh, Leviticus is about the tabernacle system and the explanation of it, and the very center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16. And so um, you can think of the narrative leading up to Leviticus as setting up this theological crux. Uh, God is a holy God. He's created humanity uh, to dwell and have fellowship and communion with humanity. But by Adam's rebellion and sin, uh, humanity is kicked out of his presence, kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And Leviticus is really explaining the way in which God has opened up for humanity, specifically Israel, to enter his presence once more. And so, Answering your question uh, leads into various other themes, like considering how the tabernacle represents a return to Eden, um, and but also the way to that presence, uh, the the various cultic sacrifices, the sin offering, the burnt offering, and again the Day of Atonement. So, uh, to, to sort of cut to the chase, we can say that the heart of the Pentateuch is the need humanity's need for the blood of atonement in order to be reconciled uh, to God. And so that gives us uh, Spurgeon's beeline to the cross. Um, The very foundation of the canon is the gospel. It's that God has provided atonement for his people uh, to have fellowship and enjoy reconciliation with him. 
Uh, and of course, the tabernacle uh, is a model. So the way, as you know, I explain this in class is that the tabernacle is, is almost like a, a drama. It's a stage. And it's really prophetic. It's God saying, this is what I'm going to do in the real world, as it were. Yep. So that the Day of Atonement needs to be accomplished, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but it needs to be a true substitute, which is the, the heart of the gospel message. Yep. I, I received a, a, a Twitter. Um, you, I know you don't. Well, I don't know if you do or not, but it doesn't really matter. Um, but from the publisher, actually, um, that asked the question, um, should, and, and this is somewhat related, but not entirely, but should have Adam... Um, sacrificed for Eve after she ate of the fruit. Now, this was from your publisher, so... <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know how that relates, but I w- it was an interesting question. I thought I'd throw it out there and, and maybe put you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I have a little exorcist on that, and I don't want to make much of it because it's really speculation. Uh, we know what, what Adam did not do. Uh, we, we know what he did do. He, right. He uh, joined uh, the woman in sin and... Um, uh, fell with her and uh, chose her over over God, chose rebellion. But the question of once the woman has fallen into sin and you have Adam, her, her head, and he's a righteous man, uh, the way that I tried to pose is what do we see um, commended mm. to us in the rest of the Pentateuch? And there's examples like when Judah finally uh, demonstrates the, the fruits of his conversion, and he offers himself in the stead of Benjamin when uh, the Pharaoh's cup is found in his sack. Uh, this idea of offering oneself for another. Uh, Moses, when Israel falls to the apostasy with the golden calf, he, he actually says, let me ascend the mountain and see if I can make atonement for you. And he, yeah, and right. he basically offers himself, Lord, blot me out if you will not forgive them. And so I, 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 th- I think it should be without controversy that it, whether or not God could have accepted such a substitute, it certainly would have been uh, the godly response uh, for him to bring his wife before Yahweh and um, offer himself. And I just hinted that because it, uh, this is looking in retrospect of the second Adam, what he does for his bride. Yep. Um, this is, the, again, the beauty of the gospel. Yeah, it, like I said, I threw that question out there because – IVP tweeted it and directed it right at us, um, knowing we were going to talk today. And then, I, I, and I'd heard that thrown out before. I'm not sure it was from you or somebody else, but I'd heard that, and, and it was interesting. But with what you said, I, I, there's obviously a great deal of speculation that goes there. And, and in this subject, you have to be careful not to over-speculate. Right. I, mean, I think you'd agree with that. And one of the reasons that I even bring it up at all is just to show that the Levitical system of sacrifices um, is only typological and temporary. And we really get the carpet pulled out from that in Genesis 2. You know, Genesis 2, many scholars are coming to the understanding that Eden is sort of your archetypal, the original Holy of Holies that the tabernacle later temple is trying to recapture. And it's amazing when we get sort of a view behind the curtain What's going on in the Holy of Holies? We we see this matrimony. We we see you know Genesis two is almost completely about uh, this point. It begins with a lack. God for the first time says something is not good. That the man is alone. Then we have this strange parade of animals before Adam, and you know the remark that he didn't find a helpmate for himself. Uh, and then God creates the woman out of his side, and so. 
we're being given this theology that he is one flesh with her, and once she's fallen, at the very least, it should be very obvious that no animal can be her substitute. Right, absolutely. But you would agree that that certainly in the garden, um, after the fall, when God confronted them and then the promise was given, Genesis 3.15, that there must have been a sacrifice of some nature because he clothed them. I mean, again, it doesn't state that explicitly, but... Right. Yeah, that's, think, a, that's a common understanding, and I think there's a lot of exegetical fodder for it. And, 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 and that, maybe just building on that a little bit, does that um, picture for us um, what's coming in Leviticus? I mean, the sac- you know, with, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. God expels Adam and Eve, but he closed them. Certainly a sacrifice was given so that he didn't have to annihilate them. I'm, mm-hmm. Again, that, that would be my understanding. But it's driving then home, because then we start seeing sacrifices, sacrifices, and we get to Leviticus, and we see the full unfolding of that. Is that... Yeah, I think that's part of the theme building up to Leviticus, and that's why in the book I have a preliminary chapter covering yep. Genesis and then Exodus. What we find in Genesis is that humanity descends further and further away from the presence of God. So Adam and Eve are exiled uh, just outside the gates of Eden, and then we find that in the next narrative, Cain and Abel results in Cain being further east of Eden, uh, exiled to the land of wandering or the land of Nod. And and this uh, avalanche, uh, the growth of, of sin and the expression of sin, uh, reaches its culmination, of course, with the flood, when God just wipes humanity off the face of the earth, sparing Noah, of course, and, and his family. But then it starts over again, and he scatters humanity from the Tower of Babel, so that by the time you get to the, the Exodus, um, the knowledge of God is as... Um, just disappeared. In fact, Moses says, okay, when when, when he's uh, meeting with Yahweh at the burning bush, and he says, okay, when I tell them the God of uh, our fathers have sent me to them, they're going to ask me, what's his name? Yeah, right. You know, so, uh, and that sets up sort of, again, the, the path toward Leviticus, where God not only needs to deliver his people, but he needs to do it in such a way as to reveal who he is. Yep. So, there's a knowledge of God coupled with the restored presence of yep. God. Yeah, and, and and just listening to you talk about it, and of course, have, I've taken your class, the book, um, your dissertation, obviously all this is feeding into this, but as I mentioned to you off-air, we're, um, as a family, we're reading through the historical accounts of Israel um, particularly, so we're starting in Genesis, reading all the way through the Chronicles, Kings and the Chronicles, and, um, but because of the biblical theological understanding of the, the central themes that are driving through it, it's become more... I don't want to say dramatic, I mean, but there is a drama, um, mm-hmm. and and that's one of the things that you 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 pick up on um, in the book. I mean, you you specifically have titles that mention this dramatic drama type narrative that is driving towards Leviticus, and then you get to Leviticus chapter one through ten. You have a whole chapter on that. Can you maybe, in summary, give us one through ten? What's what's the issue there? Yes, good question. Um, to do that. Uh, we need this set up from the end of, of Exodus. Yep. So in Exodus, um, you have the tabernacle being constructed. Uh, the glory cloud moves from Mount Sinai to over the tabernacle, and we read that the glory of God fills the tabernacle and the cloud covers the tent of meeting. And we find something really odd, uh, namely that Moses is unable to enter. And this is significant. Uh, we sort of take it for granted because we have a similar account with Solomon's temple. And I 
deal with those parallels uh, in the book, but for our purposes, this is a this is a, a dramatic cliffhanger with which the book of Exodus ends. Yep, yep. It's not a neat ending, uh, and and especially given that Moses is described to us as the man par excellence who's able to enter God's presence. So while Israel stays at the foot of the mountain, he ascends into the cloud. He's there 40 days, 40 nights in the presence of of God. Uh, he is the one able to ascend into his presence, and then suddenly we read he's not able. And that's the problem that Leviticus 1 through 10 is going to resolve. Um, uh, the way I describe the, the tabernacle, again, is something like a microcosm. Uh, it's... It's, it's a new world uh, filled with the glory of God. Uh, it's a dramatic world, like, like Shakespeare's Globe Theater. Uh, it's, it's just a microcosm of, of the creation. Uh, but because creation is polluted with the presence of sin and the stain of death, uh, God can't um, dwell in the presence of his people there. So we need to create, as it were, this second uh, micro world, the tabernacle, when it's filled with its glory. Uh, but Moses can't enter in. Uh, in. In one sense, you could say this is the new creation filled with the glory of God, but there's no new Adam yet right, uh, to right. be brought in. And so what happens in Leviticus is God begins to speak from the tabernacle, giving them the instructions for how someone can approach him. So, you know, God has moved into your neighborhood, but you can't just go up and knock on the door. <laughs> He's got to give you instructions. And so Leviticus 1 through 10 highlights the need to approach God only in the way that he is revealed, and that way only. And so what is that way? Well, uh, chapters 1 through 7 reveal the system of sacrifices, and then um, 8 through 10, you, you get the uh, ordination, the installation of the priesthood to offer those sacrifices. Chapter 10 is the actual first, um, or the chapter 9 and into 10, the, the opening, the inaugural worship service. And so... Uh, the resolution to the end of Exodus comes at the end of Leviticus 9, where we actually read, it's narrated that Moses and Aaron enter into the tent of meeting. And so we have that resolution where God has revealed, this is how you approach me through the blood of sacrifice. And so that first obstacle is overcome. But then, as you know, in Leviticus 10, uh, Aaron's sons, as soon as the door is open, uh, decide to approach in a way that God had not revealed. And this is very important for understanding the full picture. Uh, once the door is open doesn't mean we can just willy-nilly, and it really undergirds the regulative principle. Uh, God consumes them. Yeah, it, 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 you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we're talking about Nadab and Abihu, of course, and Leviticus 10. Now, you make an interesting point, and, and I'd like you to ex- even expand on that because I think in contemporary in the contemporary church, I mean, I'm talking 21st century, there is this sense, this idea, because they don't rightly understand a number of things, there's a sense in which we can just approach, because of the work of Christ, we can now just approach God any way we want, willy-nilly, as you indicated. How does that practically, just, this, this, just these first 10 chapters of Leviticus, how does that practically affect the way we worship today? Well, it should underscore, I think, first of all, the the nature of God. I mean, this is the whole theological question that's set up. And and again, by that question that I've titled the book with, Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh, or who shall abide in his holy place? God is utterly holy. And yes, he's descended to dwell in a tent in the midst of his people, but that doesn't mean they can just approach him. And so when you really study deeply the approach that he's opened up, the blood shed, um, all of the theology of sacrifice, 
all of it serves to underscore that we are unworthy to be in his presence and and it underscores that it should only be in, in the acceptable way the way that he is revealed and so Nadab and Abihu, it's really fascinating. I mean, we would need something like PowerPoint to to really bring out some of the parallels, but the worship service that we get in chapter 9 is mirrored by Nadab and Abihu's approach. One example is uh, the inaugural worship ends in chapter 9 with the people shouting. Uh, It ends in chapter 10 with the silence of Aaron. Uh, God is glorified. His glory is revealed in chapter 9. Uh, he is glorified in chapter 10, but by the con- by consuming Nadab and Abihu, uh, and they, they belong together in this image, uh, or sort of this, this complete picture. How that relates to our worship today, I, th- I think the theology has not changed. God's character hasn't changed. And certainly the accomplishment of Christ wasn't to allow what God had forbidden uh, in the Old Covenant. Uh, and I think that, you know, that's particularly clear in Hebrews 12, where we are bidden to, yes, we, we approach God with confidence, but with awe. And it, and it says, and so worship him, uh, you know, with reverence and awe acceptably, which shows that there is an unacceptable way. And so when we see how Christ himself uh, fulfilled these, um, the theology of the sacrifices and all that he suffered and endured, uh, it should not lead to uh, a light view of approaching God, yeah. but actually it, it hallows it even more so that we should be filled with more awe uh, and, and come with joy and trembling uh, into his presence. But that's something that is easier said, and, and it really takes the meditating upon, um, I think, uh, the theology of Leviticus, and that's one of my hopes in, 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 in writing this book, is that uh, that idea or, or that theology uh, will... Uh, make a fresh impact by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, that it would be wonderful. I, I remember having a, a a brief discussion with my daughter because um, you know, she would, you know, she would ask these contemporary questions. You know, why can't we worship this way? Why do you think that's unbiblical? Why do you think that's wrong? And you know, we have these terms now: traditional worship, contemporary worship, which I hate. Um, it's biblical or unbiblical. Let's just cut to the chase. And and I asked her. I said, well, when you read the Bible and you see all the times that men, a man met God face-to-face, as it were. I said, what was the response? Mm-hmm. Was it goofiness in, in, in this uncontrolled attitude and response, or was it reverence and awe and, and sometimes falling on their face and, and trembling and, 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 and all of these other facts? What, what is that communicating? It, it's not communicating. It's communicating God's holiness and how we approach him. And so Leviticus 1-10 through 10 really sets that up, and it really begins this drive towards what is the heart of, the, of Leviticus, which is chapter 5 in your book. And now we're going to cleanse the house of God. And, mm-hmm. and why would the house of God have to be cleansed? That drama actually is set up with what we were just talking about with Nadab and Abihu. So, so God uh, consumes them, uh, and suddenly... You have in this, you know, tabernacle, which again is sort of an architectural re- recreation of Eden, the mountain of God, restoration with God, and suddenly you, you have death there. Yeah. And that is as odd as it would be to read in Revelation that something dies on the new earth. It, uh, it, it breaks um, the symbolism. So, for example, Aaron, who sort of represents the Adam of this, this new Eden, he is commanded not to mourn because mourning smacks of, of death. And you, you have to keep the the symbolism. But what happens then is you have the, the worst form of um, pollution, and that's the corpse pollution, uh, there in the tabernacle premises. But also, 
Nadab and Abihu, and, and I take this, and there's some debate on this, but there's a general consensus that what they were trying to do with their censors was say, hey, God opened the way for us to meet with him. Uh, you'll notice that God appeared, uh, his glory uh, consumed um, the sacrifice on the altar, so he appeared outside, and they wanted to take it further. Yep. Uh, let's go into uh, the tabernacle and meet with God in his house. And so that's a twofold problem. One, uh, now that this Eden has been uh, polluted with the stain of death, what can we do about it? Is all lost? We have, you know, does everything just have to collapse? And then, secondly, uh, is there a possibility in the Mosaic Covenant for us to have near access to God? And both of those tensions are resolved by Leviticus 16, where you have uh, Aaron, the high priest, penetrating into the presence of God um, in the deepest way possible in the Old Covenant. He actually enters into the Holy of Holies with the Blood of Atonement. But then also that ritual accomplishes the cleansing of the tabernacle uh, as well as the people. So God, uh, in his condescension, sets up a way for the tabernacle regularly to be cleansed so that it can keep functioning uh, as a place of meeting uh, between Israel and, and God himself. You know, it, it, it's a fantastic connection between the death issue, and, and I'm glad you said that because you know, th- this whole idea of death in God's presence is, is very in a very odd. It would be very, very odd, um, mm-hmm. just like you mentioned in Revelation. And you kind of moved into chapter 6, and that's okay, um, with Leviticus um, 16 and 17, um, this this movement now where where Aaron is meeting with God in the most in the most central place possible on earth in the tent which is the new Eden which is Eden represented in the tabernacle take us through briefly the importance of the day of atonement as it pertains to this entire narrative and how that relates directly to the great high priest who is the Lord Jesus Christ Wow, briefly, briefly you said. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a licensure exam. You know how they always That's tell right. you briefly, and it's like, yeah, sure, I could do that in three minutes. Not. <laughs> but, yeah, um, if the Mishnah is to be believed as accurate, uh, when the Second Temple stood on the Day of Atonement or for the Day of Atonement, uh, God's people would hear read Genesis 1 through Leviticus 16. Mm. Uh, they would read this as a, a complete narrative, and that's how I, I'm approaching it in, in this book. So you have Adam, who is exiled from the presence of God from Eden. Uh, He's made to descend the mountain of God due to his sin. And uh, as I mentioned, the narrative then continues with the estrangement of humanity from God. Leviticus 16 represents the reversal of that. And and to understand that, maybe it would help to give the background of how the tabernacle also represents a a mobile mountain of God. So this is perhaps the most clear in the Sinai narrative where... Uh, at the worship of, of God in, in Exodus 24, you see the mountain is divided in a threefold manner. You have the summit, Moses alone approaches, the midsection where the elders, along with Moses and Aaron, approach, and then the people at the foot of the mountain. When the glory cloud moves from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, uh, that's catechism, that the tabernacle is now the new portable mountain of God. And so we see that Aaron takes the place of Moses. He alone is allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies, so that represents the summit. The rest of the priesthood into the holy place, that's the midsection, and then God's people in the outer court. And the reason why that's important is because when you understand that that connection is being made and understood, then you realize whenever a priest enters into the tabernacle, he's actually ascending a mountain, and when he's coming out, he's descending with God's word to the people, just like Moses ascended and descended and 
uh, Mount Sinai. And how that sets up the drama then uh, maybe also involves getting into some of the parallels between Eden and the tabernacle. So uh, perhaps just to list one, you have there on the the veil separating the Holy of Holies Hmm. from the holy place. Woven upon it are the cherubim guarding this entrance into God's throne room. And this, I think, uh, the people would have understood, um, given the narratives there in Genesis 2 and 3, as um, informed by that narrative. So when God exiles Adam and, and the woman from Garden of yeah, he Eden, guards the, guards he sets the garden. up the cherubim there. Yep. And so uh, you put those two together, and in many ways, I think the, the Eden narratives are feeding into the people's understanding of what's going on in worship. So all of that... Uh, to come back to Leviticus 16, what we have here is the high priest as a sort of a cultic Adam is ascending the mountain of God, and he's going through the cherubim back into the presence of God, wow. and the clear theology that this is only done by the way that God has um, ordained, and, and namely through the blood of atonement. So uh, that leads us to the work of, of Christ, and um, maybe Luke's gospel is, is, is a fitting example you know, on the uh, Mount of Transfiguration, he's talking with uh, Moses and Elijah specifically about his exodus. Yeah, yeah. And this is basically an exodus movement out of exile back into God's presence. And when he comes, when uh, he is crucified, you know, what does he tell the repentant uh, criminal? He says, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Yep, yep. And this is what we see that the full gesture of Christ's work after he sheds his own blood for our atonement, as the author of Hebrews points out, he ascends into the very presence of God. So not the architectural holy of holies, but the true um, heavenly holy of holies with the blood of atonement. And we have to see that in all of the beauty of, of his humanity. We have in Christ our own humanity restored to the presence of God, not in some uh, model or, you know, like Shakespeare's globe, uh, the earthly temple, but in the true heavenly holy of holies, the true Eden, the true paradise. Uh, so that full gesture of the, the cross, burial, resurrection, ascension back into God's presence, this is the restoration of humanity to paradise. And it's, it's what we see in shadow form there in uh, Leviticus 16. Yeah, it's, it's a glorious, uh, just listening to you talk about it. I mean, I've been a Christian for a lot of years, but... Just listening to you describe it that way, um, in summary, certainly there's so much more to it, but it's so, it's encouraging, it's edifying, it's convicting in some ways, but it's, it, it just really ought to launch us into a great deal of praise and thanksgiving because we await now that glorious time when, not, not in a tent, not in a, in a church building on earth, but in the very presence of God. Um, we will see him as he is. We will mm-hmm. be with him um, for eternity. And he secured that. Um, and Leviticus 16 just pictures that in, in all of its beauty. And when you understand it from the New Testament to the Old, and you read it backwards and you see that, you just can't help but go, wow. I mean, it's just you stand in amazement, really, at the entire picture that's placed there. And as I indicated earlier, I, mean, I mentioned earlier, you know, I grew up in a dispensational world, and, and this was just so lost. I mean, yeah, yeah, they, they, they would give the typology of the high priest and Jesus and all that stuff, but the rest of it, you know, the mountain of God and, you know, the whole idea that the ta- tabernacle and then Christ coming, he dwells with his people, as it were, as a tent in the midst of them. It's just really glorious. Just listening to you talk about it, just, it's really amazing. So, there's so much more we could talk about in the book. Um, I mean, we could 
there's other issues. I don't know if you have anything in mind specifically you'd like to highlight from the book. I had jotted down a few comments um, that people might be wondering, like, uh, how do we reconcile the issue of the high priest and Christ and Melchizedek? Maybe that's something you could comment on. Um, that's just a thought. I don't know how that relates to the book or not, but maybe it does. Um, I don't know. You got I mean, any- in general, it might be helpful just to give the overarching theme. Sure. So I'm I'm trying to, to, to demonstrate that the main story of the Bible is God's desire to dwell with his people in communion and fellowship. So this was the goal of creation, and after the fall, it becomes the goal of redemption. And so it's to dwell with God in the house of God. And so, uh, you know, I'll use passages like the end of Psalm 23. You know, David expresses this amazing hope, I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever, all the days of my life. How can he say that? He's not even allowed into the temple. Yeah, right. Uh, But we understand this if we realize that the original creation, the cosmos, is described analogically as, as a house that God wants to dwell with us in. Once that house is corrupted, you need a temporary portable one. You get the tabernacle and then the, the little temple. But that temple is, is like a, you know, it's a, it's a crass analogy, but like a Barbie doll house. I mean, it's, it's picturing God's purposes, but it's not the end reality. We get the end reality in the, the houses, the cosmos' house there in Revelation 21, 22, uh, that, that God uh, dwells with us. We see his glory in the face of Christ. And and I think that it's a helpful theme. It connects a lot of the other themes in the scriptures, but also it it should inform our worship. Yeah. Um, this is where we have a foretaste of that. And so in this book, I develop what you might call, you know, approaching the mountain of God. Every, if you would have asked an Israelite, you know, what does it mean that you're approaching this temple? They would have pointed to Exodus 24. This is when they approached God at Mount Sinai to worship him, this is where they entered into covenant, and that pattern informs their worship. Well, do we have something like that for the Christian today? And the answer is yes, and I, I would point to Hebrews 12. We still worship God at his holy mountain, but in the heavenly reality. So we are approaching the heavenly Mount Zion. And there's a, a beautiful way you can even fit our Reformed liturgy into that, from yep. the call to worship entering into God's presence, and as Calvin understood the sacraments, we are by faith ascending into the presence of of Christ in heaven, feasting upon him. Uh, So when you realize that Lord's Day by Lord's Day, you're approaching God in the heavenly Mount Zion, and this is a foretaste of the new Jerusalem, uh, it just... um, it's very sanctifying. It ought to change. Yeah, it ought to change your approach to worship. I was I was jotting down some just some practical things that this book could generate and should generate um, as you read it. Um, I mean, I'm not going to you know fool the listeners. It's it's a technical book. Um, not not everybody will understand everything in it. I don't understand everything in it. And 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 but it's. I was just jotting down some practical benefits, and one of them you already hit it on. Our approach to the Lord's Day. Uh, you know, Leviticus informs us of this and how we approach God. And in your opinion, how, how are we doing as a church in the 21st century on that subject? Lord's Day. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't want okay. to pander to, to, to the choir, but, but um, uh, I think it, it goes without saying for those who have sort of come to appreciate the nature of God, which our Reformed faith really brings out, his, his sovereignty, his majesty, his holiness, uh, there's a real desire for a new Reformation. Uh, you know, even Calvin, uh, in one of his treatises, expressed the need for the Reformation was for the sake of the worship of God. And, yeah. we, and this is what we see throughout Israel's history, the, the godly kings reformed worship, and uh, would that um, God would 
revive specifically the elders and pastors of um, our churches and give them a new sense of soberness and awe um, in how they lead God's people in worship. Yep. And then it practically, it, you know, it, you, you've already mentioned worship. We're not going to rehash that, but it really does inform. And, and if we rightly understand it, you know, preparation to worship. And it's not just, you know, we don't just wander into the church on Sunday morning. Okay, I'm here. Um, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much preparation that goes in. You know, for those first 15 chapters of Leviticus, or really specifically the first 10, all these preparation elements that are involved in approaching God. It's not just we don't just fall in there. Um, but we think about what what are we about to do, and the call to worship does help us. But even before that, you know, Saturday evening or mm-hmm. you know, Sunday morning, you know, and it's difficult with with families and kids, and and maybe you can. You have a, uh, I forgot how many children, a number, uh, and, uh, um, but, you, but you wrestle with this, and we all wrestle with this, approaching God on the Lord's Day, and we, you know, we read the confession in the larger and shorter catechisms, and we were convicted by this idea of preparing our hearts beforehand, and, and, but then we have kids running around, craziness on Sunday morning, maybe practically how... What kind of advice might you give, you know, you uh, pastorally to families out there that want to do it this way but struggle? Well, I certainly can't give any advice uh, based off of um, uh, merit on my part. Uh, that's something that I do struggle with. There, there's good practical applications actually in, in Piper's uh, The Lord's Day book, uh, but I think in general, my wife and I, uh, we we want for ourselves and for our children for the Lord's Day to be. The high point, mm. and you know, as I think it was Tertullian, said, you don't fast on the Lord's Day. This is the day of feasting, yep. and so whether it's the kind of breakfast we have, or you know, this is a day of joy, but but also to make it clear that it's it's the whole day. So it, it's we're not just uh, attending for an hour at church and then you know that's it. Um, cultivating this theology that the whole day is is the Lord's tithe. Uh, and so the things that we do, you know, there are certain books that our children read on Sundays, um, and they know that there's a lot of books that are good and, and, and useful that they don't read on Sundays, and, and so that they, they understand there's a distinction. But more than anything, just cultivating in, in their minds and reminding ourselves that first and foremost, we are visiting God. This is what I love about even the term tabernacle, Mishkan, it's the dwelling of God. Yeah. So worship is yeah. always characterized by we're visiting God, we're being with his friends. So even if you know a three-year-old can't understand all the details of the sermon, the issue is that they're in God's presence, and, and that is a, a covenantal right, it's a privilege, it's a glory. And, and so, um, you know, even if I could remark of there's uh, Abraham Heschel, and uh, he was uh, a Jewish um, person, um, and he wrote a book on the Sabbath that is still very useful for Christians, and he said it's, it's a day that we enjoy, but that we don't in, enjoy it through frivolity. You don't do cartwheels. Uh, there, there is a holy joy uh, to the day. We don't want to be somber, but um, we we want to hallow the day. And so, for uh, us as parents, that that's you know things like um, getting the kids uh, clothes uh, for church out on Saturday night, yeah. and and just being prepared so that we're we're not caught off off guard or or trying to catch up on our way to church you know just very practical things that uh, we can do to ensure that the day is sort of reserved yeah well said and and uh really appreciate the nature in which you said that it's a challenge especially when you have children i i went through it um 
it's a challenge even without children to prepare rightly. I want to close our, our discussion with something that D.A. Carson uh, said on the back of the book, and, uh, and, I, and, I've, and I've picked this specific on purpose because of something you'll find out in a minute. But he says this about the book. This book promises to give us not only a theology of Leviticus, which it does, but also a richer theology of the Pentateuch, and finally of the whole Bible, which is what it does. I predict this volume will spawn some excellent sermon series on Leviticus. Now, I say that, and that was a quote from D.A. Carson, who's the editor of this um, um, New Studies in Biblical Theology series, but I say that because you're working now on a commentary on Leviticus. Is that right? Almost. Almost. It's a commentary on numbers. Ah, see, like I said, it tells you how well I pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> but, okay, so anyway, commentary on numbers, but, but again... It's it's the Pentateuch. It's the it's these issues that come forward. In God's providence, it gives me the opportunity to actually bring forward in a more detailed way some of the fruit from that Leviticus work. So it's certainly in there, and and I hope by God's grace it'll be profitable. Any ideas as to when the listeners might get their hands on that one? <laughs> right <laughs> now, one of those questions that you get the look. This is radio, not TV. I fond of saying that, but you know, I got that look across the table. Like, why did you ask me that? <laughs> the editors are bugging me enough. <laughs> Hopefully, your their the listeners' grandchildren uh, may be yeah. able to get a copy. Yeah. It. Um, I mean, I've made some decent work, but I w- I would say I have about a year and a half uh, to turn in the the manuscript, and then I've heard from someone else who've completed a volume in that series that it took the publisher maybe two years of of editing to actually get it out. Oh, wow. And I don't know if this particular person needed a lot of editing or if that's regular. So we'll Can you out. reveal the editor, or is that classified? Well, I don't know the, this particular editor's name, but it's the publisher is... Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Press. publisher. Okay, yeah, great. IVP. It's IVP. It's the Apollo series of uh, Old Testament commentaries. Excellent. So, well, look forward to that at some future future unknown date we don't know when but but look forward to that and you know really i look at my i look at my commentaries on my shelf and i and and, you know if you i've got plenty on genesis but when i get to numbers i have plenty on exodus when i get to numbers it's pretty it's pretty sparse and and maybe that's because there's not a lot out there on numbers um so it's a needed uh, discussion and commentary and it does feed um, it's uh, fed by the study in leviticus so just look forward to that and and i did want to get that that promo in um, uh, on this discussion. I don't know what else to say about the book. I mean, I, I, I strongly encourage people to read it. I, I've had the benefit of, of listening to Dr. Morales live and in person at Greenville Seminary. And if you're thinking about going to seminary, and this kind of discussion, these are the things we talk about in class. Uh, these come out, and, and Dr. Morales is fond of writing on the, the board and, and illustrating very clearly and plainly um, these matters. And so if that's something that interests you, you can even audit the classes. So it's not as though you have to enroll in the seminary, uh, but you can audit classes. And um, um, But it's, it's really, it's rich, full, rich, redemptive story of the Bible, and it makes you love the Lord Jesus Christ all the more when you see these things laid out for you, um, even in the earliest books of the Bible. So I appreciate it. Um, Dr. Morales is a scholar. I mean, you just listen to some of the things he says and references to some of the classical works and, and tying these things together and illustrating it. So um, I I'm really appreciate that your labors and work, and um, I think it'll benefit the church. I hope it does, um, and pray that way. Thank you very much, Bill. You bet. Let me uh, wrap up real quick. Uh, if you want to know what's coming up on the program, um, I don't have the webpage in front of me, so uh, we're just going to have to wing it. Um, I think it's Brian Croft. Uh, he is coming up. 
to talk about pastoral theology, pastoral ministry, especially with in family life and how that ties together and some of the dangers and pitfalls that some ministers have fallen into in this area and how you can keep balance uh, in your life. So it's really geared towards pastors, but those who may be seeking the ministry or, or considering it, um, just remember, uh, your wife comes with you. And uh, so family comes with you. And so you got to keep that balance. And, and uh, so we're going to talk with Brian Croft about that, as well as other related matters. So that's something what's, of what's coming up on the program. There We are working diligently to uh, do other uh, things. And so uh, stay tuned to the podcast, as well as our website, confessingourhope.com. But until next time, would you thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.